As far as folks know, I'm like the only out polyamorous rabbi that they have heard of. And this person said, you, you know, you don't have to do that. But but they also said to me, look, every time I've come out as a queer person, I've never regretted it. And and then they said to me, I'm going to use some Hebrew words. One word is parnasa, which means like the money you need to live on. <laughs> and the other is Torah, your Torah, your thing that you like. Mm. You each have a Torah that you're teaching. Um, you're not each the same person. He said, if you are going, this person said, if you are going to worry about increasing your Parnassa at the expense of shrinking your Torah. Right, then you're going to be miserable. And that to me goes right back to that idea of narrowness, right, versus breadth. And I wouldn't do that to anyone else, so why would I do it to myself, right? Welcome to the Multi-Amory Podcast. I'm Jace. I'm Emily. And I'm Dedeker. We believe in looking to the future of relationships, not maintaining the status quo of the past. So whether you're monogamous, polyamorous, swinging, casually dating, or if you just do relationships differently, we see you and we're here for you. On this episode of the Multi-Amory Podcast, we're talking about polyamory and Judaism with a very special guest, Rabbi Nikki de Blasi. She is a PhD and a queer polyamorous entrepreneurial rabbi who brings expertise in queer theory and belonging to Jewish teaching and ritual. She holds a BA in Women's and Gender Studies from Harvard an MA and a PhD in Performance Studies from New York University, and an MA in Hebrew Language and Letters and Rabbinic Ordination from the Hebrew (laughs) Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. Gosh, that's a lot of school. There's no time for that. Welcome, Rabbi Nikki. Welcome. So I want to start right off because our other show that we do, some people may or may not know, it's called Drunk Bible Study. And on that show, we are reading through the entire Bible. And so often we get to a moment in the text where we see that there are people with multiple partners, often men with multiple wives or concubines or things of that nature. And you were actually part of a panel last year called Open Tents and Open Hearts, Jews and Polyamory. And the little pamphlet that we were sent about that panel, uh, the first line said, although Jews have been practicing polyamory since the days of Hagar, Sarah, and Abraham, the practice is a cultural taboo among contemporary mainstream Jews. So can you just speak to that a little bit? Because that's a really interesting place to start. Yeah, I mean, just you're starting from the absolute beginning, um, which is where the Torah begins, Bereshit, in the beginning. <laughs> and Abraham being kind of the first Jew, right? He's he's known as the first Jewish person. He's the first person <laughs> who has this special relationship to God. And and he has a wife, uh, Sarah, and he has this other person in his household named Hagar. And it's interesting. To me, it's interesting because lots of us as Jews know that story. And we know that there are three people in that household. Not only that there are three people in that household, but there is a sexuality, a sexual relationship, at least in what a polyamorous person might call a V shape, that Abraham has a sexual relationship with both Sarah and with Hagar. But I think that's where the similarity ends, or I kind of hope that's where the similarity ends for most people, because Hagar is actually a person who is enslaved. She works for Abraham and Sarah. And it is not as far as we can tell from the text, it is not her decision to enter into a sexual relationship with Abraham. And we could call it a story of sex trafficking just as easily as one might call it a story of polyamory. The problem is we can't go back and ask Hagar Mm -hmm. and ask Abraham, what was it like for you, right? What was it like for Sarah? Um, You know, there's a lot that we're going to get into in this conversation, I'm sure. But one thing that I want to point out right from the beginning is that we never see a story of more than one man with a woman or more than one woman in the Torah, it is always multiple women with one man. Mm-hmm. And the word for a, the word to refer to your co-wife, if you were a woman right. in a household where your husband had 
women with whom he had other sexual relationships, whether they be called wives or other terms, which we'll get into. That word for co-wife is sarot. So if you've ever heard someone say in Yiddish, I have so much service in my life right now, they mean sadness, trouble, tribulation, challenges. So the fact that we call the co-wives sarot, right, there's a clue right there that this is not beautiful compersion, you know, uh, consensual ethical non-monogamy. They're a pain in our butt, right? Like there, there is, it's something that the husband it's does. It's just that they're a pain. The husband is called the Baal Habait, the mm. master of the house. And it is a sort of centralization of power. Um, the word for husband in modern Hebrew continues okay. to yeah. be Baal, right? Which means master. So people in, so, mo- you know, modern Hebrew speakers, um, feminist mm. Israeli women, mm. they, they, um, there is a trend of not calling your husband Baal, but having a different Hebrew word um, because, right, that metaphor is baked into the system, which, you know, I'm not saying to sort of badmouth Judaism, but when I inherit the text, that's the same text that y'all are reading in Drunk Bible Study, except you're reading it translated at least twice, probably probably four times, sure. right? You're reading it from Hebrew to Greek. Yeah, we're so oh, we oh, have to more slow than down. So when I receive the text, the same text that you're reading in Drunk Bible Study, I'm receiving it in Hebrew, right? Not in Hebrew that was then translated right. to Greek and to Latin and to English, right? So, and Hebrew is a really small language. Huh. There's not a huge vocabulary in, in it. Um, and so how we kind of know what I'm things sure. mean, yeah, that we can have a whole conversation about words that come into modern Hebrew, but how we know about things, what things mean is looking around in other places. But when we get the introduction um, of this story, right? We've I've already taught us a couple of Hebrew words, one of them being Baal, husband. The word for mm-hmm. wife is mm-hmm. Isha, which also just means woman, right? Huh. There are some, some complicated things already going on there. And so Sarah, she's called Sarai at the time. She is called Eshet Avram. She is the wife of, of Avram. She is the, his woman. Um, and she doesn't have a child. And so she has a shifcha mitzrit. She has a, a Egyptian servant girl or servant woman. So there's already different titles for these women, right? And, the, and their relationship to this, to this man. Um, none of them are like ethical non-monogamous lovers, right? That's just not a word that would make sense to use in this text. And I think that's the challenge that anyone who is inherits a religious tradition that's text-based, right? The challenge we have is that the words we use now, the words didn't exist then. Obviously, human beings and sexuality and, you know, the way we have sex with each other, like we haven't invented that much new. We have electricity and like silicone now, right? Like it's not that different. Body parts were the same, right? Like we're, we're human beings. They were human beings. We relate to each other. They related to each other, but we really have different understandings about, you know, the word sexuality and what it means and identity and, um, and equality and reciprocity, just all of these things, right? That, that are required. Um, I don't know. Abraham and Sarah, it's, it, if we use them as an example in Judaism all the time, because the idea of open tense and open hearts, open tense refers to the fact that these two were really known for welcoming people into their tent. Like these strangers are walking by and Abraham runs out to say, come in. Mm-hmm. He also volunteers his wife to cook them dinner, which is a little like, let's discuss. But he says, come in. He doesn't say, who are you? Why are you traveling by my house? Just come in. My tent is open to you. And that's beautiful. And that's hospitable. And I think, isn't that wonderful when we say to people, may your house be welcoming like Abraham and Sarah's tent was welcoming, I think, but also maybe don't mistreat the person who works for you in that house, right? Don't participate right. in sex trafficking if that is what was happening. Um, you know, like they're, they're, they're great, um, amazing, wonderful ancestors in our story. And they also were human and did some things that I don't think the yeah. Torah is telling us to imitate. Right. By giving us their story. So I I have questions about that because, you know, so I was raised evangelical Christian. So, you know, we we have the same figures in that text as well. Right. And a lot of, you know, the patriarchs were, you know, polygamous, you know, had multiple wives or multiple concubines for. And I know in Mm -hmm. the Christian tradition, it was so interesting to see all the different 
ways that basically church leadership would really try to distance ourselves from that practice, right? So while also justifying it at the same time, you know, because it's like we can't just trash the patriarchs, but we also can't say, oh, yeah, having multiple partners is okay. Um, And so I'm curious about that complication today, right? Um, You like of like of like, how do you point to this as, oh, there's an example of multi-partner relationships that's like very closely interwoven into our faith, but also it's not quite the right, the quote unquote right version of it. But also, you know, like, like, I, I guess I'm just kind of wondering like the, the contemporary Jewish take on that. Yeah. Well, let's acknowledge also that this is, you know, thousands of years of history that we're now um, mm-hmm. squishing into a, a, into a 45 minute podcast conversation, right? Uh-huh. And the way that <laughs> Jews have related to poly relationships and multiple partner relationships over time has changed. And to give a gross generalization of that, part of it was in response to our neighbors. Uh, Jews have lived in different places over history. And oftentimes, uh, most of the time, we haven't been the ones on top politically uh, in the Mm -hmm. places where we lived, right? We lived under the Romans. We lived under the Babylonians. uh, We lived in um, in Muslim Spain, beautiful, great relationships, actually, in Muslim Spain between Jews and non-Jews. But there are times when um, Christian church starts to downplay not only the poly relationships of the patriarchs, but also the celibacy of early Christian leaders, right? To try to say to lay people, oh, you should be married and you should, right? And and around that, you know, this is sort of like medieval. Um, there, there are times when Jews are worried about being judged by our Christian neighbors as immoral. So, so the this is really a generalization, but we've got the patriarchs having these multiple relationships. And we have in um, our our version of Bible, we call it Tanakh, um, the Torah, the Nevi'im, which is prophets, and the Kituvim, the writing. So it's kind of like an acronym, Tanakh, T-A-N-A-K-H. So that's like what I would call like the Hebrew Bible. Um, So in the Tanakh, there are examples of Jewish kings who have many wives. And there's already a discussion in those books, like in the books of First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, saying, "Was there too many? Like, is there a number of wives that's too many wives for a king to have?" <laughs> and by the time we get to the later interpreters of the Torah, who are trying to, um, like, basically, what happens is Judaism is one kind of religious system until the temple in Jerusalem gets destroyed. Those times before were when we were like bringing the goats. If you read through the book of Leviticus, Vayikra together, you read about a lot oh, of we goats. Did. So much blood being dashed against oh, yeah. the altar. Oh, yeah. And that's a vegan. That, it was very hard. It is. I'm working with a, with a vegetarian bar mitzvah student and it's really rough. Yeah. Um, except yeah. that when the temple was destroyed, um, it was destroyed twice, rebuilt once, and it was destroyed mm. sort of for good in the year 70 of the so-called common era. Um, the rabbis started to make a different system for being religious. And one of the things they had to do was kind of figure out how to translate the things that Jews used to do in in our ancient times to their contemporary times. Hmm. And the question of the king was was one of these questions in Jewish law and the question of whether it was the king who could have what were called pilag shot concubines and not just wives. It was always the case that men could have more than one wife so long as he could maintain three things for her guaranteed her basically her food her clothing and regular sexual intimacy i mean that's all a lady needs we're very <laughs> easy creatures but, but, but think about this in terms of except really think easy. about this in terms of when we talk about um polysaturation right and what your partner expects of you. What Now, maybe we might not have a list of three that, that are the only three, right? In a contemporary poly world, I might say, what are the basic needs that you need met in your relationship, right? When, when, when the rabbis of the Talmud are writing this down or talking this out in around the year 200, um, they're assuming a certain kind of power differential between men and women, which might sure. mean that a woman might not speak up and ask for what she wants. And they have a notion of what they think women want and need. We could debate whether they knew. Did they mm. ask enough people? There's not a lot of women's voices in the Talmud. But they did have a notion that if you added another wife to your family, that you could not then give your first wife less food, less clothing, less regular, less sexual intimacy than she had before. Right. Which, again, 
is like isn't it's not like we're measuring this out in in polyamory but how do you decide if you have capacity mm-hmm. right to to add another partner into your life do i actually have enough to give this person so like you know i'm not an apologist for the sexist or androcentric or heterocentric or transphobic parts of jewish tradition but i do mm-hmm. want to acknowledge right that that these rabbis knew that there was power differential and i really think that they felt like with power comes responsibility and one of those responsibilities was if you had more than one wife, like you, you you, can't just be like, well, I like this other person better now. She's new and shiny, this new wife. So forget you. Right. And there are some um, mm. rabbis, even later commentators on this who say there's one guy, the Ramban, he's he's a Spanish commentator. And he's, he says, um, actually, it's it's not even food, clothing and sexual yeah. intimacy. It's the qualitative nature of the intimacy. It's do you touch each other? It's the closeness of your flesh instead of flesh as in meat that you would eat. He's saying like, are you do you touch each other still Um, for instead of clothing? He interprets it as the coverings of her bed, meaning the place that you get that you get together with your wife. Like, you know, when you're one partner um, who doesn't isn't nesting with you. Right. And you have a date and you make it look all beautiful and you and your nesting partner are like, just push the laundry off the bed. Right. You know, how how are you tending to the qualitative nature of your um, relationship? So these all are, I got off on a tangent of myself, but what I was talking about was that the way that we've thought about multi-partner relationships as Jews has changed over time. Um, there was this permissibility of having multiple wives for men <laughs> to have multiple wives. It was never permissible for women to have multiple husbands. Sure. Well, I want to jump back on yep. your tangent, honestly, yeah, maybe unhelpfully, but <laughs> well, no, it's so interesting. I mean, so to think about, again, this kind of older approach that's like, okay, all women need is the food, the sex and the clothing. Mm-hmm. Right. And to think about that today when thinking about, yeah, like judging, do you have the capacity, you know, to be maintaining multiple relationships without getting polysaturated? And I feel like I, I'm just like populating this imaginary argument in my head mm. where, you know, I I think I have heard people be like, oh, but different relationships have different needs. You know, like, it's okay if I just, like, it's different if I have a live-in partner versus a hookup over here, things like that. But I'm trying to think of, like, what might be these things that qualitatively could apply to any type of relationship or any type of format, you know? So things like being able to afford everybody, like, dignity, honesty, safety, respect, you know, the kind of things that apply regardless of how entangled or not entangled the relationship is. And I think, like, it... In this particular text that I'm thinking about, um, he can't, you know, the husband can't reduce these things. Um, The implication, if you're just reading that text, is that he can't reduce them from whatever he was providing to her before in their particular relationship. So I remember we teach this text about um, how frequently people have are are, are supposed to offer. Like, what does regular sexual contact mean? The word in Hebrew is onah which which does not mean pleasure. It means like um, season or period of time, right? Hmm. So if it means a season or a period of time, actually, I want to I wanna see if I can open the text. Um, this is in the Mishnah. So the Mishnah is kind of the very first level of um, the Torah tells us what to do. How do we actually enact it in everyday life? Um, and so there, this thing of like, well, what is... Um, regular sexual contact how Mm. often do you have to have provide your wife an opportunity for sex you cannot um according to jewish law you cannot coerce your wife if you're a husband you cannot coerce your wife you can't you can't you can't rape her right marital rape is something that the talmud knows about and condemns which is huge right u.s law didn't know about that until the 1970s right so this is the this is the talmud saying you can and you can't like verbally coerce your partner either, right? There's lots of other times when you're not supposed to have sex. Um, and again, it's like in this in this context, it's the husband because he has more power under the sexist system. My response is always like, why don't you change the sexist system and talk about how everyone is kind of balancing power between and among us. But but the times for, for regular sexu- sexual contact, if you're a person of leisure, should be every day. If you're a day laborer, it should be once a week. Keep, wait, hold on, Dedeker. I see the face of like, she wants to, it's coming. Uh, the mule drivers once, uh, oh, laborers is twice a week. Sorry, mule drivers once a week. 
camel drivers every 30 days and sailors once in six months. Why is the sailor only once in six months that he has to? Do you really have to like keep to this schedule? Is this just a, a suggestion? Or is somebody going to come around and, and well, we check can debate off and make for days sure? And days ever it's a su- if it's a suggestion. I say. But think about how many times each of you have probably been asked, how often should people mm. should a couple or a cool have sex? What's normal? Right. Mm. People have been asking that question for a jillion years. Right. And the rabbis are like, well, let me tell you, you have an obligation to offer your wife pleasure. Why does the why does the sailor get off with uh, six months? Why can he? I assume because he's sailing. He's literally on the boat. He's on the boat. Yeah, they don't have. uh, They don't. They they can't have Zoom sex with each other. He's on the boat. But it also meant right (laughs) that if he came home from that six month sail Mm -hmm. and he is at the harbor and there's another chance to go out on the next boat and make more money, he has to go home first and check in with his wife. And she could say, "It's okay, honey. You can go." Right. But but he can't just walk away. Yeah. And now I remember yeah. teaching this to college students at New York University where I worked for eight years. And one young woman said, you know, like how what my job. Oh, the other rule is that you can't switch jobs from um, a job that allows you to have more frequent sexual contact with your wife to one that would require that would, huh. you know, that would allow you less contact Oh, um, without Whoa. talking to your wife first. Oh, right. So you wow. you That's you have nice. to get okay. sort of the consent of your partner to to walk away now. Huh. So a student said, "This is ridiculous. My job is my business. Um, I would never let a man dictate to me." Right. And I thought, well, let's hold on a second. Right. I'm teaching this class. My co teacher also was a married person. I'm married. I have two kids at home. And I said, "Do you think do you think that neither of us said to our wives like, hey, I'm going to teach a class mm. once a week.'" That yeah. keeps me on campus until 930 at night. So I'm never doing bedtime on Thursdays. Did I just mm-hmm. announce that? Right. Or did or did we have a conversation to work that out together? Right. In some way. Not that I had to ask permission or that my wife has schedule veto power or anything like that. Right. But that but that it is actually, you know, these are like live issues in our in our conversations with each other. And so the rabbis here are saying, if you are going to add another sexual relationship into the mix, you you have to still think about tending to that regular opportunity for intimacy with your other partner. I don't think, Emily, that um, it has to be scheduled. I do think some people interpret it that way, um, right? That um, this is where you get the the myth of um, every Jewish person has sex on Friday night because Having sex on Friday I've is never a, a heard double that one. mitzvah, a, a double commandment. Oh, oh that's man. cute. You, had, wow. you gotta hang out at Jewish summer camp. Um <laughs> the, <laughs> I guess sex I do. on Friday nights is a double mitzvah. <laughs> Comes from this yeah, idea that gosh. it's once a week, right? That you would um have an opportunity for intimacy. But I see. Um, but you know, as an old married person, sometimes tending to intimacy is awesome and spontaneous. And sometimes it's like, you know what? How many days has it been? Maybe we should pay attention mm. to that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yep. Can yep. relate to that for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, what I want to bring us to, what I'm really excited to talk about is you not too long ago published an article uh, titled Toward a New Framework for Reform Jewish Views on Polyamory and published it in the Reform Jewish Quarterly in fall t- uh, of last year, 2022. Uh, ironically, in what they called the family mm-hmm. issue, uh, which we could definitely talk about. So can you talk to us a little bit about um, the process of even writing that article in the first place? Yeah, so I um, I did not begin my career mm-hmm. as a rabbi. I thought I was going to be an academic. And I was in graduate school doing queer theory um, when I told my dad Alava Shalom. He he has passed away eleven years ago. But when I told him I was going to become a rabbi, he said, "Oh, thank goodness, uh, because oh, I've never heard of performance studies professor, but I've heard of rabbi before. <laughs> like maybe you'll get a job." Um, but I really made a change, right, from academia to rabbinical school, and I had been um, used to sort of thinking and writing um, about you know these really these critical mm-hmm. ideas about um, what sexual freedom actually means. And studying with people like um, the two of my late professors, uh, whose memories are blessing, Eve Sedgwick and Jose Munoz, um, studying with Anne Pellegrini, folks that your listeners would um, 
Some of their stuff is really esoteric and highbrow, and some of it is pretty accessible, but all of it, I think, classic um, queer theory. And to go from that world to a rabbinic world where there is kind of an unwritten model of what a good Jewish life looks like. Um, and Judaism has in it, like, first of all, to even say Judaism as though that's one thing is just completely false. There are denominations of Judaism, just like there are denominations of Christianity. Um, and so, you know, one might say Judaisms. And also there's um, the perennial joke, um, two Jews, three opinions, like even we can't agree with each other within <laughs> our own community. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, so there's always a multiplicity of thought, even within one one stream of Judaism, the major streams are orthodoxy, conservatism, reform, and reconstructionism. Um, and they all developed for different needs in different times. Um, but I went to this movement that had, that I chose as my Jewish home, like the denomination I wanted to be a part of, because at the time I thought we sort of had both the most robust structure in the US where we were we're we're a really large movement in the US um there are there are 2200 reform rabbis in North America um now but also because we uh, very much have stood for increasing equality so i had an opportunity i was on the editing committee of this family issue and you know had this opportunity to sort of push and say well, are we going to redefine what family means in this issue? If we're not going to redefine what family means, I'm probably not interested in being a part of it. Um, thinking about concepts like chosen family, thinking about things that I've thought about since rabbinical school, like what about single folks in the Jewish community? What about people who do not want to raise children, who know they don't want to raise children, right? Um, we are... Um, this is sort of tangential, but I think connected, Dedeker, to the to the question. Um, and it really reminds me um, that folks should re-listen to your episode on queer theology as well. Um, that a, a huge thing that happened in my movement while I was in school is that one of my teachers, who has since died, Eugene B. Borowitz, Rabbi Dr. Eugene B. Borowitz, the preeminent theologian of 20th century Judaism, um, he had for a long time... Um, while he had personal relationships as a teacher with gay and lesbian students, he would not sign the ordination certificates of gay and lesbian students. Oh, wow. Hmm. And it was, and this is something that like in speaking to my queer elders in the reform movement, um, people are still really carrying trauma over. Sure. And, you know, I, I had, yeah. I mean, I, I had a complex relationship with Dr. Borowitz and, but I will say that like he helped me when my dad died, he was, amazing and like a real mensch, a real ethical person. And he um, he wow. asked me to present on feminist theology because he knew that I had a PhD in queer theory and, and I had a background in women's studies and asked me to teach the class on sort of the history of feminism and women's rights. You know, this is someone who doesn't need anyone else to teach most things because he knows all of it. Hmm. Um, but mm -hmm. he changed his position officially. And I think it was 2011. Oh. And it was after one of my classmates gave a really moving sermon about queer inclusion. And when he stood up to make his speech, I'm not a dry eye in the house. And also there were rainbow cupcakes. It was a wonderful, beautiful day. Wow. Um, and he, my, his, behind me is my smicha, my certificate of, of ordination. And his signature is on there. Uh, but he stood up and talked about how now he knows that, um, basically his, ar his argument was that, um, really important to him as someone who was a young person um, during the Holocaust, the Shoah, um, and who was involved in the civil rights movement. Like this white Jewish guy went down to the South and like uh, swam with black ministers to integrate a segregated pool, right? He, he had always thought that the command to be fruitful and multiply, to have children was so important. And his notion was gay people can't have children. And over time, my students have changed my mind and we can have, you know, they can have children and raise families. And so now I will sign their certificates. Everyone was so happy. And then we went back to class and I went to my history of reform Judaism class. And someone said, well, we just witnessed history and everyone's clapping. And I raised my hand and said, you know, respectfully, what if someone came up to Dr. Borowitz and said, I know I'm not going to have children, 
Is he going to refuse to sign their ordination certificate? Like, I was watching in real time with absolute utmost respect to the gay and lesbian rabbis who came before me, who made it possible for me to get into rabbinical school. I was watching in real time the, the politics of normalization right? The gay people are accepted because they can look so close to straight people. Right. Because they can match Mm us. I mean, I literally right now have two kids and a white picket fence in front of my suburban home. And at the same time, I want to make more room for more people to belong in Jewish community and to see ourselves in those. So when I was asked to write this article, um, the person who asked me to write the article was like, you have this background where you know about theory and the theory of sexuality. And um, I worked with college students. I had many students who would do things like hide their tattoos, also frowned upon in Jewish law, um, but then introduce me to their boyfriend and their girlfriend. So I'd be like, mm. oh, you're you're mm. you don't think I'll judge you for being poly, but you <laughs> do think I'll judge you for having a tattoo. Really interesting. And I am a tattooed rabbi, but that's a whole. But and I was just like, you don't think that I would. Okay, like, interesting. Um, You know, the younger folks kind of just thinking, well, of course, Rabbi Nikki will be okay with this. Um, And I think that was the assumption, too, was like, you probably know about this. And then I had to make a decision um, whether to write as the expert or to write from a personal perspective. Right. Because at this point, like professionally, you are not out. Professionally, I was not out. And I actually had um, become de facto monogamous when I got into rabbinical school. Mm. I, mm. yeah. And I didn't, I hadn't, I, so I hadn't really identified properly as polyamorous. I read The Ethical Slut in 2001, 2000, 2000. It's fun that I remember. Maybe if it came out in 2001, <laughs> then that's when I read it. But um, I had. I think it came out in '97. Oh well, I was late. Yeah, to the even game. older. We lo- we look the- we looked this up recently. Yes, I believe it came out in '97. You would think I would have read it in college, but I but I hadn't. I read all the other things. Um, so much Foucault, <laughs> and so much Freud. Um, but I I read the book and <laughs> kind of thought, well, this is a a theory that makes sense to me. By at this time in my life, I actually was not Jewish yet. I was raised Catholic. Um, but I was like, goodbye, religion. Religion is for people who want to oppress women and gay people. That was my sort of naive thought. Um, it's part of why I love wow. y'all's podcast, because you have a an open-minded, open-hearted approach to how people might respond and relate to religion that isn't it's it's good or it's bad. Um, right. Uh, yeah. oh, I want to talk about that later. Nothing. There's yeah. there's only yeah. so many hours in the day. Um, mm-hmm. But I was um, but I sort of. My then partner, now wife, we've been together since 1998. So like poster children. And we really were the poster (laughs) children. If you look at the Harvard Crimson 1999 commencement issue, there was an engagements page. And one of our friends told us, um, and this was in the height of like, don't ask, don't tell. And should um, ROTC be allowed on college campuses? And are there even anti-discrimination laws for queer people, right? All of this is you know, every episode you talk about religion and polyamory, you have to talk about structural sexism, homophobia, transphobia, all these things. And um, and so someone said to us, there are no gay people in the engagement issue. And so we said, oh, we can pretend that we're engaged. <laughs> Send a reporter. <laughs> and they sent a reporter huh. and a photographer. And um, my wife and I basically made out the whole time so that they couldn't possibly publish a picture of us where we weren't kissing, like we just... Where it wasn't clear. <laughs> we, we really didn't want them to... I, I am so sick of actually being asked if we're sisters. If, if another oh. person asks us if wow. we're... I'm like, you can't imagine why two women... We got asked if we were sisters on our baby moon. Like my wife was visibly pregnant. It was like, who is this lady that's sitting with you at dinner? The <laughs> other parent of this... Wow. Um, wow. But so we were in that, we were in that engagement issue um, as a matter of activism. Um, we stayed together. We've been together this this whole time. And and when we moved and we were working, of course, in like feminist nonprofit reproductive justice organization in D.C. after we graduated college. And it was there that um, I met people who were who identified as as ethically non-monogamous and who said you should read this. And I think the term that was going around then was open relationship, not even ENM course, or poly. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, and I thought, oh, maybe this this could be for us. And it was for a little while. Um, but I really, really got scared of intimacy. I thought, oh, this can be about sex and like fun and sort of on the side. And then I was like, oh, I have feelings. Is this okay? And mm-hmm. I actually went to my, my wife was chill the whole time. She's a very chill person. Uh, but I went to her and said, I think we either need to break up with each other or get married. I mean, talk about escalator situation mm-hmm. and we right. we we got yeah, engaged yeah. and then um and then i continued to have and everyone can attack me for my biphobia at the time i'm not like this anymore but i continued to have an intimate and sexual relationship with a male friend and i think in my mind it was well this is about me figuring out if i'm bisexual and mm-hmm. so that's okay mm-hmm. and uh, i'm this but but that's not really like being open is not part of my identity. It's just this thing that I'm trying right now to make sure um, that I understand myself as a as a sexual person, right? Um, and lots of things happened in our lives, you know, over 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 the years. Eventually, when I was accepted into rabbinical school, I just decided that I would not, um, I wouldn't, and I hadn't been pursuing other relationships, but that I also would break off. Um, with this friend who I hadn't seen or had sex with in a really long time, but I was like, called him and said, that's it. I'm going to be a rabbi now. So this isn't allowed anymore. Um, and I'm going to, mm. and I'm going to respect that and just decide that it's not allowed anymore. Um, and I think there are a lot of people over time who've probably done that, right? Just oh, as sure. there were people in the history of my movement. Um, we, I think it was in 19, uh, the 80s when we finally um, agreed to ordain gay and lesbian people. The conservative movement, I think it was 2015. Um, Mm -hmm. I'd have to check on those dates. Very recently, right? We have a lot to contend with, those those trauma verses that, what did you all call them in the Christianity episode? The um, Like the clobber verses. Yeah, yeah. but we have those, you know, we we have them in Hebrew, right? (laughs) Um, Right. right? we, We unfortunately handed them to you, I'm so sorry. Um, but, but, but I think there was a sense of, um, there are, and I do think that there are boundaries. I do think rabbis should be boundaried people. I think in a day and age when we have seen, um, that rabbis can sexually abuse people just like any other human being, unfortunately can, I certainly believe in ethics and boundaries and, uh, being a responsible human being, um, but over the past probably five or so years for myself, I just started to really realize uh, therapy will do that to you. This is actually a part of my identity. And the talking to someone's identity is is something that has been crucial to my sense of why I'm a Jewish person and why I wanted to be a rabbi. Um, yeah, the, the, the text... This can be your pull quote for your for your show. You can I'll just give you a Hebrew pull quote, Jedeker. No, uh, which there's there's a the Passover story. Um, there's a line that you read from the Passover Haggadah that says, "Behold, Dor Vador Chayav Adam Lirot Et Atzmo Keiluhu Yatsami Mitzrayim." In every single generation, a person is obligated to see themselves as if they had made the exodus from Egypt. So. The central story that we're told to reenact as Jewish people, which is a story that Christians also inherit, right? The story of the Exodus from Egypt yep. is um, what not you were slaves and therefore, right? But in every generation, no matter how far from that time in Egypt you you physically live, you have to act as if you have to see yourself ke'ilu, as if you had had that experience. And if I know that someone else has had an experience of in Hebrew, Mitzrayim means narrowness, mm. right? That someone has been constricted, restricted, put in this narrow place. Like, wouldn't I want to help them into a broad, open space? And like that, I mean, cheesy as it is, it has been like what I've wanted to do since I was a kid. Like, I don't like when people don't belong. It's not fair. I was the kid stomping. That's why I was bossy to blossy. It's not fair to leave that person out. It's not fair to tell that person their life is less than or the way that they love someone is less than. Um, You know, at the same time, if the exodus from Egypt wasn't the water coming as a wall and the water just went everywhere, 
and there were no boundaries to it, like that's also not helpful, right? I say as a parent, um, I have to give my children mm. some boundaries or we're all going to have a meltdown at the supermarket, right? Before we continue on and get to talking more about this article, as well as some of the results that have come from that, we're going to take a quick break to talk about some ways that you can support this show. If you like getting this kind of content out there into the world for free, the best thing you can do to support that is take a moment to listen to our sponsors and support our show if you're able to. It really does go a long way to helping us get this out there. So thank you so much. For a long time now, we've been fans of adamandeve.com for getting sex toys or lingerie or accessories, things like that. It's just a fantastic resource with a huge selection. And now, not only do we have a fantastic offer, but we also have a promo code that will work on adammail.com and evestoys.com, which are their sites specifically for LGBTQ audiences. And our code is fantastic. It's 50% off of almost any item in the store, and free discreet shipping when you use our code MULTI. Yes, we love adamandeve.com and have for years. They are our oldest and longest sponsor, and they just keep on giving great gifts to us and to our listeners. You can bring more pleasure and satisfaction into your bedroom by going to adamandeve.com, adammail.com, or evestoys.com and select any one item. It can be you know, an adventurous new toy or anything you desire, something fun, something sexy, whatever sounds good. So just enter offer code MULTI at checkout and you'll get 50% off almost any item plus free shipping. That's MULTI, M-U-L-T-I at adamandeve.com, adammail.com or evestoys.com. This is an exclusive offer that is specific to this podcast and it's better than any offer that is currently available on their site. So again, use code MULTI to get you not just the 50% discount, but also the 100% free shipping. Code M-U-L-T-I. So what's coming to mind for me is, you know, the scene here is that you've been approached to write this article as an expert, as an academic, right? Mm -hmm. Approached as like, you're someone who probably knows about this, so why don't you write about it? And so in that service of taking people out of this constricted space into a place that's more expansive and more free... I guess I'm wondering, you know, you could have done that again as the expert and the academic, someone who knows about these things, but you chose to to essentially come out, right? And to be like, this is my life as a queer polyamorous Jewish person, and this is what it's like. And so I guess I'm wondering why it was important to you to take that particular approach. Two reasons. One is sort of an academic or, or um, ideological reason, and the other is a personal reason. The first is that I, I believe that at this point in time, the conversations that Jewish communities are having about polyamory are in two places. One is polyamorous Jews saying, you know, I pray to Abraham, and I mentioned, we don't pray to them, but I, when I pray to God, I, I mention Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Sarah, and Rebecca, mm. and Rachel, and Leah, and that's three dudes and four women. Why? Because one of those dudes has two wives, and yet I don't see myself reflected in the synagogue. So, like, what's going on here? Can I be out to my rabbi? When my rabbi is doing a wedding for two partners, can I say we're not going to promise sexual fidelity because we are ethically non-monogamous and we practice that, right? People are having those conversations. And then there's, there are, and this is a generalization, but there are some Jewish professionals who are like, this isn't allowed either. Um, this is retrograde, right? This is this old fashioned thing that people used to do that is obviously wrong. And they're not wrong in that Judaism has moved away from um, uh, allowing uh, in, 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 in 1100, uh, an Ashkenazi rabbi in, in Europe, a German rabbi says no more plural marriage for men. Right. Like it's it's we don't have it anymore. Um, and or they're saying things like, why would we bring back an institution that's sexist? So from a feminist point of view. So these two conversations are happening in separate places. And what I wanted to do was say we we all actually need to be having one conversation that pays attention to a bunch of different things. And I take this from huh. um, the structure of this from a nun named Margaret Farley, who writes a book called Just Love, a framework for Christian sexual ethics. And she says that there are sacred sources that you need to take into account when coming up with a sexual ethic and making rules about how your religious community makes boundaries around sex. And, and so if I translate what she writes into sort of Jewish talk, I would say that that is our Torah, so our our entire 
sacred literature, um, our, our Talmud, our, our halakhic literature, our Jewish legal literature, um, our liturgy. So like, what do we emphasize when we pray and what do we de-emphasize um, in our liturgy? And then also um, modern scientific knowledge. Like we understand sexuality and gender differently now than the rabbis. They didn't have the information. And the fifth source is the one that I've I personally felt like even rabbis in my own movement um, were in danger of ignoring when it came to poly people, which was the testimony of actual human beings who are polyamorous. You cannot talk about me if if you're not talking with me. Hmm. And so then I was like, well, am I going to ask someone else to be the me to write that that speaks? Hmm. Um, or, or am I going to be, you know, my own, um, me and, and now I'm going to tell a story that's going to make me cry and it's okay, um, that your listeners are going to listen to me cry, which is that I, I went to a mentor who was one of the first gay people ordained in my movement. And this person was closeted and said, I was closeted at the time. You do not have to be some kind of hero to write about this and to lead a conversation about this. And I am now part of really an international conversation like people know it's me um i i i I mean as far as folks know i'm like the only out polyamorous rabbi that they have heard of um and this person said "You, you know you don't have to do that but but they also said to me look every time i've come out as a queer person i've never regretted it and and then they said to me i'm gonna use some hebrew words one word is parnasa which means like the money you need to live on. <laughs> and the other is Torah, your Torah, your thing that you like, mm. you each have a Torah that you're teaching. Um, you're not each the same person. He said, if you are going, this person said, if you are going to worry about increasing your Parnassah at the expense of shrinking your Torah, right, then you're going to be miserable. And that to me goes right back to that idea of narrowness, right, versus breadth. And I wouldn't do that to anyone else, so why would I do it to myself, right? Which is a hard decision to make, and I do not begrudge any um, Jewish person, rabbi or not, uh, employee of a Jewish institution or not, um, who is poly and closeted about it, because we yeah. also, like, Parnassa is not little. Like, we have to have some what to live on, and we don't want to damage all of our relationships and burn all of our all of our bridges, but I felt like I had the privilege to spend in this capacity and so spent it wow I, I mean yeah i mean well okay well i had tears in my eyes so <laughs> i'm just gonna let someone else great I, ju- I, I mean i think that's that really speaks to a lot of the debates that i think people have when it comes to speaking publicly about their relationship styles or their identity you know of that like i don't have to be but can I afford to be? And could I make a difference in that way without hurting myself too much? Right. It's that constant debate of, of, and and I think it's not even just in terms of those big things of like writing this article that's outing yourself to everyone or starting a podcast or, you know, coming out to your family or whatever, but it's also even that calculation comes up in little everyday interactions of this could come up organically in the line at the grocery store, yeah. but do I want to go there? Is that, and it's like that, that equation is constantly rebalancing based on the circumstance you're in, who you're talking to. I'm at a new job. Do I bring this up? You know, like all these yeah. things. And we yeah. do unfortunately have to be making that calculation all the time. And I think that's a thing that folks don't always understand. Um, if you're queer in any way, uh, if you're not queer in any way, right? The, um, this thing feels to other folks like privacy that we're airing in public, right? My yes. my dad mm-hmm. of blessed memory didn't like that I wore a rainbow necklace in college. He didn't know what it meant until I told him what it meant, but then he didn't like it. And he said, you're advertising your sex life to everyone. And I was like, first of all, I just got to college and just came out. I I assure you my sex life is theoretical. I'm not, there's nothing to publicize, <laughs> my friend. So A, B, you wear a gold ring on your left hand, on your ring finger. That means you have sex with my mom. Gross. That's it's private. I don't need to know that. Uh, he never bothered yep, me about that again. That's always my response right? too. Yeah, totally. Right. Yeah. It's like these things that, and then you add on that for me being a rabbi, right? Which means that when I say, 
Judaism believes believes X. Number number one, I, I don't say that, right? I say Judaisms believe a bunch of things, but that people really believe what I say. And then that becomes a statement about Judaism. So I, I just want to make sure that your listeners know that my existence uh, does not mean that any branch of Judaism endorses or celebrates or ritualizes polyamory. We do not. Polyamorous Jews ritualize their relationships and and have Jewish practices, of course, um, but none of them are like endorsed by a, an official rabbinic body or like there's no movement of Judaism that has a has an official position about polyamory, you know, writ, writ large specifically. Do you want to continue the thread on rituals because a lot of your work has to do with creating rituals? So can you talk more about that? We just had an episode on rituals recently and... I'm interested in the intersection between the rituals and then also the ones that we talked about on that episode. Yeah, it's so funny. So I was just, I was listening to it earlier and I, I didn't finish it yet, but, um, and I'm trying to remember what where the part was where um, you started to talk about performing rituals. Mm-hmm. And so because I have my performance studies hat background on, um, I can, I can stand mm-hmm. on my performativity soapbox for a second. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, which is that in in performance studies, performativity actually means the opposite of how most people use the word. Most people use the word to mean it is just a performance, right? With scare quotes around it. It's fake. It's mm-hmm. put on. Performativity means actually the opposite. It, when a performative is done correctly, felicitously, J.L. Austin would say, the book is called How to Do Things with Words. It means that the words, the gestures, the people performing them um, are enacting something. So my favorite example of performativity um, versus performance is, have the three of you or any of you seen The Muppets Take Manhattan? Uh, of course. Sure. In The Muppets Take Manhattan, there's a play at the end of the movie. Spoiler, everyone. And Kermit and Piggy are playing the groom and the bride, respectively, in this play. That is a performance. Now, Piggy loves Kermit and would definitely want to marry Kermit, right? And it's kind of a back and forth thing the whole time. We can analyze their relationship and whether it's the right amount of consensual <laughs> sure. another time. I also love Miss Piggy. But in this play, Piggy realize, or rather Kermit realizes at the end that Piggy has changed the casting. And now there is a real ordained minister playing the minister. So it's not a performance mm, anymore. It's a right. performative. If they say those words, I now pronounce you pig and frog or whatever, they're going to actually be married, right. right? So performativity is is what ritual tries to do, right? When we, um, when we, the ritual that um, that I referred to, Dedeker, when we talked with each other previously, is this ritual called Tashlich um that originates in eastern europe and is a preparation for yom kippur for the day of atonement when you want to change your ways right and 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 atone for all the things that happened in the past year and we physically go to a body of water that feeds into the ocean and we used to throw breadcrumbs now people throw things that are more environmentally friendly to animals but we would throw breadcrumbs into the water to symbolize casting away uh, the mistakes that we made in the past year that we want to distance ourselves from there's something really powerful about a physical action. It's at the ocean or the river and you're hearing the water and you feel the breadcrumbs in your hand and you put them and you watch them go out and you say these words, I'm distancing myself from these mistakes that I made. That does something for you, right? Whether you believe in a soul or spirituality, like it does something for you that it is not an intellectual exercise. And polyamorous people are basically saying like we need that moment like for us like for our relationships we need to be we need to have a physical spiritual embodied acknowledgement of who we are even if that's um a kid in who's being raised by more than two parents and there's no divorce right wants to have all their parents up with them on the bima at the front of the room when they're reading from the torah at their bar bat or bet mitzvah we want to all physically be present. We want to be acknowledged as a family in that moment. Like there, there are, we have a human need to connect like the brain to the body, to the heart, to the soul, like uh, all of the, all of these that that's, you know, I mean, that's what all this is about. Like incense in a Catholic church, right? It goes into your nose. The vibrations of the songs are going into your ears. Like it's, it's doing something to you um, as an embodied human. 
I just that just uh, I don't know. I just started cracking up because <laughs> for something happened when I turned like after I hit my 30s, I don't know what happened, but suddenly I was like I want jewelry from my partners. <laughs> um, when I never, when I never had before, like, and I think especially in my twenties, and I'm deconstructing all these messages about relationships and about marriage and what it means. You know, it's very much like, ah, oh, whatever. You know, this is like sexist and a terrible institution. I don't want any part of it. And there was something where I was. It wasn't like I want to get married. It wasn't necessarily I want a marriage ritual, but it was just like I want jewelry. And I want um, jewelry. You know, and like, it sounds great. Yeah, yeah there is something. <laughs> There was just something about, and I wasn't attached to it having to be a ring or the diamond or whatever, right? It was just some jewelry, right? And I found there was something so nice about that of like, I put on my rings in the morning and I think about both my partners when I do. And so like you saying that, I'm like, yeah, like from a legal standpoint, it didn't change anything. It didn't necessarily change how I go about my day to day, but it is just that, Mm. I guess that, that performative, as you would call it, just that something that yeah, that just like makes it feel tangible and feel real and is witnessable also is something where like when people ask about my rings, I can be honest of like, yeah, this is from one partner. This is one from the other. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that that mm-hmm. I don't know, that really clicked witnessable. for me when you were speaking. Yeah, there's mm-hmm. and it's so not rational. It's not irrational. It's just it just isn't in the realm of the rational. Yes. Right. And yes. so I think about, you know, um, why do Jewish people, um, I'm not wearing a halakhic, a Jewish mm. legal ring, um, because the ring has to have no stones in it if you're um, following Jewish law when you get married. And people will mm. say, why does the ring have no stones in it? And and often people say it's uninterrupted and eternal like your love should be. So beautiful. A back formation on what the sort of practical answer is, which was that legally the man was obligated to gift a woman with an object of a minimal value, a certain value. And it was much easier to, mm-hmm. um, what do you call it, uh, to assess the value if it didn't have stones in it. If it was a sincere metal, you knew how much it was worth. You, you didn't know if this diamond was a diamond or a cubic zirconia. How would you know, right? Super practical reason. Also baked into things like not being reciprocal. The woman is the one who receives the ring and says nothing. The man doesn't get a ring in a in a traditional Jewish mm. legal wedding, according to the Talmud. Mm. But I would never tell a couple today, she shouldn't exchange rings. That's just all about property and objects. You should put stones all over it, even though your booby, you know, from Eastern Europe said you don't put stones because it's supposed to be eternal. That Because it's not rational, right? And it comes from a tradition that was both an emotional tradition and a legal tradition. Even the rabbis of the Talmud, I, I teach this to, to folks that I do weddings for all the time. They they could have, the word for to get married in the Torah, did you ever come across the word to marry? Perhaps. I bet you didn't. Oh, maybe not. It's, it's, it's he took her. Oh. He took her. He lay with her. She became with child. There was no chuppah. No one stood under chuppah. No one broke a yeah. glass in the Torah. Right. Right. There was this, and they could have used the word for, for get married, could have been, the taking, hmm. right? That could have been the the root they chose in Hebrew, but they they chose a word actually. The word for for marriage in Hebrew is kiddushin, um, which you might translate as holiness. Hmm. And that's actually the sticking point that most folks have um, when talking about um, whether Judaism or a rabbi could ever endorse polyamory, which is does it not interrupt um, this idea that we have of kiddushin? which means special, distinct, mm-hmm. and set aside. And so that is a thing that I acknowledge in my article and just in my work generally, is that I am indeed calling for a radical overhaul of the way that we think about sacred relationships in Judaism. Not that we throw away this model that we have had for many, many years of Kiddushin, but to look critically at that model, um, which was not reciprocal, and which was basically the man setting us like this woman's access to this woman was set aside just for this one guy right right that's that's what it meant it was not romantic right it, it wasn't romantic she is set aside for him hmm. now we say well we mutually set one another aside what i have been saying even since before i came out to myself as polyamorous but was already ordained as a rabbi um when i was working with my first couples was this is what kiddushin meant in the past 
a lot of people now think, what's different about marriage? You've lived with your all the people I've talked to who I'm counseling for weddings have slept with each other. They're already melding finances, most of them, right? And I'll say, for a lot of folks, kiddushin, setting aside specialness, weddings meant melding finances, being open to or raising children together, and sexual exclusivity. Those three things might be the most and only, you know, most important and only things on your list. They might actually not be on your list. There might be other things that are more important to you. Right. You don't have to tell me what they are, but you should know with each other. Yeah. Do you agree on what those important things are that you're setting aside for each other? And, you know, maybe that makes me a heretic or a bad rabbi or whatever. But I but I do think that it is a lesson that I learned from queer theory, which is that you shouldn't assume mm-hmm. <laughs> That your the totally. notion in your mind of the relationship you're constructing is the exact same as the one in the other person's <laughs> mind. I knew I couldn't do that because, like, the boy asked the girl out. Well, what am I going to stand around and wait forever? Neither of us is going to ask each other out. This is going to be terrible, right? I'm going to be alone forever, <laughs> um, which probably would have made my dad thrilled. No, I, I joke. But like all of these things, right, are things that I think we need to we need to look at. And I have the the option, the gift of. And the responsibility and the burden in some ways of looking at what the Hebrew says, mm. yeah. right? And seeing where the possibilities might might be. It's so loaded. All of this is so loaded with sexism and history and, and all of these negative things, right? Yeah. But I mean, such important work, though. You know, I can see like how valuable this is to be counseled by someone who has done all the thinking that you have done and all the reading and all the writing and all the research, right? To to meld these things together, right? To take a long and ancient and really important tradition and find ways to make that still meaningful for people who still want to practice today instead of, I mean, you said at the top of the episode, you talked about how people kind of tend to look at religion as like either it's all good or it's all bad uh, when that's not really the case, yeah. right? You know, when... People, I do think people should have a right to be able to practice their religion, their spirituality, and meld it with their identity as well um, in the ways moving forward. Yeah, and I think that also means that um, we as rabbis are not, we are in so many ways a gatekeeper for the tradition, but we should be stewards of the tradition and not gatekeepers of it. Mm. I shouldn't be saying, let me let you weirdos in, right? I should be saying, if you're a part of this community, how can I ensure that you belong in this community? It is my responsibility as the rabbi to create the space for folks to belong. But I'm not doing anyone a favor by like letting them into my circle, mm. right? I'm I'm opening up and saying, you know, Judaism is going to change as it has, thank God, always changed. Or we would just be crying about the fact that we can't sacrifice goats at the temple anymore. We do still cry about that, right? There are days that we are designated to mourn for that, which I think is also an important thing. But if that's all that we did, right, we'd be frozen. And And I don't like that. I like that move toward openness and breadth and inclusion and um, just affirming, affirming people. Wow, that was beautiful. Thank you so much, Rabbi Nikki, for joining us today. And before we let you go, we want to ask, where can our listeners find more about you and your work, read these articles, things like that? Where can they find all of that? They can find that on my website, which is rabbinikki.com and I am on Instagram at ravnikkid. That's R-A-V-N-I-K-K-I-D. Excellent. So we have a question that we're going to be throwing up on our Instagram stories for this week. If you, dear listener, are a spiritual or religious person, what do you wish that your religious leaders knew about non-monogamy? Again, go check our Instagram. That question is going to be on our stories. Really excited to hear what you have to say about that. Also, the best place to share your thoughts on this episode with other listeners is in the episode discussion channel in our Discord server, or you can also post about it in our private Facebook group. You can get access to these groups and you can join our exclusive community by going to patreon.com slash multiamory. In addition, you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Multiamory is created and produced by Jace Lindgren, Emily Matlack, and me, Dedeker Winston. Our episodes are edited by Mauricio Balvanera. Our production assistants are Rachel Schenewerk and Carson Collins. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Anand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com. Do you wish you had a cadre of fun, outrageous friends who'd share their true stories of sex, kink, or gender with you? Well, I have hundreds, nay, thousands of them, and I invite you to join us every week 
on the Body Storytelling Podcast for a different story told by the person who had the adventure. I'm sexual folklorist Dixie Delator, and the award-winning Body Storytelling Podcast features stories told live on stage in front of hundreds of people. Think Savage Love meets The Moth meets Mortified, and these stories are explicit. You name it, Body's got it. Stories from fetishists, polyamorists, swingers, kinksters, stories from queer, trans, bi, pan, the monogamish, and the open-minded. Body stories may be X-rated, but each tale has a gooey center with heart and real meaning. Body Storytelling is proud to be part of the Pleasure Podcast Network, bringing sex-positive education and storytelling to your ears. I'm Dixie Delator, and I hope you'll join me as I bring you a new uncensored story every week on the Body Storytelling Podcast.